are coming to a text that is, uh, boy, in the top two or three for me in the New Testament. So I will try to be done by eight, all right? This is just such an amazing text of Scripture. It's one of those texts that becomes uh, the, the formative truth when you think about grace. So you have your text you go to and you think about Scripture, right? You go to Psalm 19 or Psalm 119 or 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17. Uh, you have your text when you think about faithfulness in an opposed, persecuting world like Jude or 2 Peter 2 and 3. Um, you have your text that you go to and you think about the, the uh, work of Christ in, in eschatology uh, and what we anticipate to happen next. You have texts that you go to when you want a, a clear description of uh, the gospel, like 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 4, or Romans 3, 21 to 26, which might be the, the most thorough and succinct explanation of the gospel in all of the New Testament. When you think about grace, this is the text that I think ought come to your mind. This is the clearest explanation in our Bibles that I'm aware of, of of the work of grace to save us and then to sanctify us. In this short power-packed letter by Paul, the spiritual father to his spiritual son, Titus, telling him how to keep things in order or put things in order in the churches on the island of Crete, he builds up to this text. This is the nucleus of the whole letter. This is the, the core thought that he's been wanting to get to, and I'll try to make that case for you as we work through this text. It's, it's a foundational text upon which you can build your own faith and your own understanding of grace. Before we get into that, I want to just ask you, how are you doing on your New Year's resolutions? Did you make any this year? I, I've kind of fallen out of favor with New Year's resolutions, rather they've fallen out of favor with me. So I don't make too many anymore, but do you make them? And, and if you did, how are you doing on those? You know, it's May, and you're almost halfway through. Are they still in play, or did you abandon them long ago? Maybe you did. I don't know. Uh, Time Magazine has a list of their 10 most commonly broken New Year's resolutions. So I would guess those are probably the 10 most commonly made as well, because they're the 10 most commonly broke. But uh, as you can guess, most of those resolutions have to do with everyday decisions that will then lead to better life, uh, at least in our, our estimation of them. So people resolve to lose weight and get in shape. Uh, they resolve to eat healthier and drink less coffee or less pop or to get out of debt and start saving money or to work less and spend more time with family or to be less stressed or to volunteer and make a difference. Why is it that we make those decisions on December 31st leading into January 1? Well, we make those decisions then because we're ending a year and we're reflective on the last year. And we just kind of inherently realize that, that your life is made up not of, of moments uh, in which you define your life in a moment, but it's a, a series of moments in which you, through habits and lifestyles and behaviors, create a life. It becomes your character and who you are. And so we realize that we need to make some changes. We're looking back in the last year like, oh boy, I keep doing that this year. We, we, need, we need some help here. So we make a resolution to resolve ourselves to not do that anymore. But, you know, a month or so in, or maybe three or four, or, you know, sometimes into May, we uh, get buried under the weight of everyday struggles, and we lose our resolve. And we start basically just trying to survive the moment and living in the moment itself. We find it really, frankly, much easier to live moment by moment, or maybe even day by day, than we do to live with 
uh, the week or the month or the year or the lifetime, let alone eternity in view. That's what we're going to see tonight uh, as we're trained in grace. It, It moves our perspective beyond momentary concerns, addressing the moment, but taking our perspective to past, present, and future grace. Not only that, but in Paul's letters, as you think about just how you work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, Paul's letter has called the churches in in Crete to be walking in accord with grace, to to walk in accord with sound doctrine. And so we've walked through that in chapters 1 and 2 as he has told them to to not be uh, selfish, not be slanderers or slaves to much wine, not be sober mi- or to be sober-minded and steadfast, to not uh, put off self-control, but to put it on and to grow in purity. And so the, the question as you come out of the end of that in uh, chapter 2, verse uh, 10, is, is how do they do this? How is it that one is to grow from being uh, addicted to wine to rather being self-controlled? How is it that that an older man is to grow in being sober-minded and dignified and sound in faith? And how is a younger man to grow in in self-control as he pursues walking in accord with the Lord? Well, these verses are the key to that sanctification process, to be sanctified in God's grace. Specifically, that this this grace has come, that this grace is, is training us, and this grace is returning, it's coming again. Titus 2, verse 11 says this, For the grace of our God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That is a mouthful of truth. There is so much here. We'll try to walk our way through the text. Did you notice, first of all, the two comings of our Lord in this text? So Paul started with the first coming of our Lord, that grace appeared, bringing salvation to all people. And then he points to the the second coming of our Lord, the soon return of our Lord, the blessed hope that we all have. The point of the text and my point to you tonight is to to point your attention to the past grace of Christ's first coming and to the future grace of Christ's second coming to shape your life in the present by that grace, to work out a life that's lived in light of that grace, that's trained by that grace, that's taught by that grace to adorn sound doctrine. By grace, we'll define this as we work our way through. It's, it's one of those Christian words. We say a lot and assume everybody knows what we're talking about, but I'm not sure everyone knows what we're talking about, right, when we say grace. Grace is the, the overabounding kindness of our Lord. It's the goodness of God expressed in his blessing us and being kind to us in spite of us. Despite our sinfulness and our rebellion, he pours out his goodness upon us, and that uh, is most preeminently seen in the sending of his Son. And so if we know the grace of God, his favor and his kindness, his active work to save us and to make us his own, if we know that grace, then our lives should reflect that grace in everyday realities. And that's been Paul's point in this letter. I've made that case to you again and again. Almost every time I preach out of Titus, 
I've said to you, he is consumed with helping you live a life that is in accord with the truth, driven by, trained by grace. He's trying to help Titus, help the churches to live out sound doctrine, to live out their grace they've been given. Back in chapter 1, Paul instructs Titus on the life and character of men that they must look this way if they're going to lead the church as elders. Remember that list of things? It's very normal stuff. It's everyday type of stuff that they're to walk in accord with sound doctrine in. As he moves on in the chapter, he starts warning them about the false teachers, the the people that need to be opposed in the church. He he tells them that they they need to uh, be called out on wicked things of everyday stuff like lying and laziness and empty talking and deceit, everyday common stuff. Then as he moves into chapter 2 and he instructs each member, each life situation in the church family for how they should now live and relate to one another, all of it is in the, under the umbrella of, of really normal stuff, really normal, everyday, common life realities to be sober-minded, self-control, sound in faith, sound in love. And then in 2.7, Paul says, Titus, you need to be an example of those things, a model for the church to follow. And then in verses 9 and 10, he addresses the bondservants, the slaves, and he says this is how you should function every day in your slavery. You should be submissive and well-pleasing and not argumentative and not pilfering or stealing. We talked about that last time, that, that list of things, just very normal things they would struggle to do apart from grace. And so Paul says, listen, this is how they should live and be trained by grace. And so that they then adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. In other words, the everyday Christian life is exhibit A of the power of the gospel. This is the New Testament uh, reality and truth presented from Matthew to Revelation. That a, a believer who has been born again by the grace of God, who has salvation in Christ, will have a life that is being trained by that grace. And that will come out of them in normal, everyday realities. They will walk in ways that adorn that doctrine in, in normal stuff. That's what verses 11 to 14 are making clear to us, that, that we are dependent upon the grace of God for our own growth in godliness. Now, it's really easy in the Christian life to think of grace as sufficient to save, and it stops there. We, we have a, a break in our mind, I think, with the grace of God, that it, it saves us from our sin, and then from there it's dependent on us. But now our sanctification is a pull-ourselves-up-by-our-bootstraps kind of reality, uh, dig in with your own spiritual disciplines, and make this a go for yourself. And we all, if you've lived any time in the faith, you know that that is a losing reality. You've tried that. You've spun your wheels spiritually. You've, you've uh, speeded it out, and, and you're just done. You, you just can't get this done. You can't get anywhere in your own growth based on your own effort. And what the New Testament makes clear, and especially this text, is that you never get past grace. The grace that saves you is the same grace that sanctifies you. As Jerry Bridges says in his book, The Discipline of Grace, you are never so good on the day when you feel like you've accomplished great things for the Lord and you know, you're firing on, on, on all cylinders spiritually and you want to pray and you want to witness and things are just going great. The sun is shining. There's not a cloud in the sky. Peaches and ice cream for dinner. I mean, you, you're just doing awesome. You are not so great even on your best day to be, on, 
to be beyond the need of God's grace. He goes on to say that you also, on your worst day, when nothing's right, when the, the engine of your spiritual life won't even turn over, the battery is dead, you can't even get out of bed spiritually. You don't want to pray, you don't want to talk to anyone, you don't want to serve anyone, you can't think about anyone but yourself, you're in arguments with all people all day, it's all about you and you know you're a sinner and you're, you feel terrible about it and you, you're just having a terrible day. Even on that day, you're not beyond the reach of God's grace. You see, you, you never get past grace. This is all of God's powerful goodness and kindness and grace. These four verses teach us that grace saves us, grace trains us, and grace compels us. That's our outline tonight. Grace saves us, grace trains us, and grace compels us. And that's the eternal perspective that I think we need then for everyday living. We need to walk in light of this past and present and future grace. Did you notice how Paul, when he, when he moved through this text, he went from, from the past grace to the present grace to the future then he goes back to the past, and then he finishes with the present. So he starts with the, pra- with the past. Grace has appeared. Then he moves to the present. Grace is training us right now. Then he points to the future. We're awaiting our blessed hope. Then he goes back to the past, tells us that Christ gave himself for us. And then he finishes the text by pointing to the present, saying that we are a people who are to be zealous for good works. This is past, present, and future grace. This is the alpha and omega of God's work in your life. It's the A to Z reality of God never quitting his constant effort for your sanctification. Being confident of this very thing that he who began this work in you will complete it on the day of Jesus Christ. There will not be a day in your existence in Christ in which this grace will not be at work in you to train you in further godliness, that you adorn the doctrine of God. So you become exhibit A of the gospel the church proclaims. So grace saves us. Let's consider that. We see that in verses 11 and 14. This is the the look at past grace, that it appeared once for all in the person and work of Jesus Christ. God has always been a God of all grace. He didn't decide to become the God of grace when he sent Jesus. No, before the foundations of the world, he, he set his affection on his own and he decided that he would lavish his grace on sinners through the sending of his son. But that had to come in the fullness of time as his son was sent into our world. This is Galatians 4. The fullness of time redeemer came at the appointed hour. And he came to bring that grace to lost sinners like you and me. Notice that Christ gave himself. So grace saves us in that Christ gave himself. That's what he says in verse 11, that Grace appeared, bringing salvation to all people. The word for appeared is the word that we get epiphany out of. It came and showed up and made made something known. This is the revealing of something previously unseen. It's the showing of oneself to make clearly known to a group of people. That's what happened at the coming of Jesus Christ. He appeared and, and brought salvation to all people, for all people, made known the salvation possible through his work for them. This is what was longed for throughout the Old Testament, a a full and final Savior who would redeem God's people from the bondage of their enemies. Namely, the greatest of that, which is sin. This is what was promised in the Garden of Eden when the curse was pronounced after the sin of Adam and Eve and 
pronounced upon the head of the serpent that the offspring of the woman would crush the head of Satan and thereby conquer sin and death and hell. From that moment on, that's the promise of God to bring this grace at some point, to rescue sinners like Adam and Eve and all of their descendants from their sin. This is what Simeon, you remember his words in the temple in Luke 2? Joseph and Mary come and dedicate Jesus at the temple and Simeon intersects him by God's providence and he prophesies and says, my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. You see, salvation appeared and it was revealing. It made known the grace of God to save sinners from sin. This grace is a person, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. He's a person who came, who appeared, who took on flesh, who lived a life of perfect obedience, which led him to the cross of Calvary, where he suffered and bled and died and took the place of sinners so that he could provide their salvation. The salvation is for all people, he says in the text, both Jew and Gentile, poor and rich, master and slave, men and women. All nations can be rescued and saved by Jesus Christ who came to save us from our sins. That's linked then with verse 14 where it says that Christ gave himself for us. That he came for that purpose, to take our place and provide that salvation. And then also he came for the purpose of redeeming us. So also in verse 14 we read that, that Christ gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness. You know what redemption is, but just think of it again. It's the term used in the, in the Roman slave trade. When you wanted to buy back a slave for the for your own use in your house. And it was at a high and costly price. All mankind enslaved to sin, sin being our master and our Lord, apart from Christ, we live under sin and we live to sin and we love to sin. And even when we don't want to sin, we sin anyways because we're dead in our trespasses and sins and it's what we know. Sin is described in our text as lawlessness. That's exactly what it sounds like. It's being without the law. It's the opposite of law abiding. It's the flouting of the law of God. It's it's thumbing your nose at the God who's laid down clear laws for us to follow. It's a perpetual state of living which we disregard God and what he thinks. It's the heinous nature of our sinfulness. It's the, the high treasonous nature of our rebellion. We're lawless when we've been given a clear law by a law giver. And the price of our redemption to be bought out of that lawlessness and, and all the condemnation we're due for breaking the law of the high king of heaven. The price of our redemption was nothing less than God himself taking on flesh and suffering and dying in our place, shedding his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. God, very God, became man, very man, that he might redeem us from sin's condemnation and sin's curse and sin's control. This is the redeeming work of our Savior. He redeems us. He also purifies us. He appeared not just to to save us, but to purify us. The redeeming work is the, the work which removes the Christian from the grip of sin. It's this purifying work which removes the defilement of sin from the Christian. So the redeeming work removes the Christian from sin. The purifying work removes sin from the Christian. They're both dependent on God's grace. 
This purification is the, the thorough washing of all filth and all contamination. It's foreshadowed in the, the ritual washings of the Levitical priesthood in the Old Testament. All the things they went through to serve in the temple, to be sanctified and set apart and cleansed so that they could serve in the temple. Those all foreshadowed the cleanliness that we needed to have before our Lord that was secured for us by Jesus himself. This shed blood of Jesus then rescues us from our sinfulness and purifies us from our sinfulness. That text you know so well in 1 John 1 and verse 9 tells you this, doesn't it? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. We already talked about that. Grace brought salvation to us. What's the next line? And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is the work of God's grace in you to continue cleansing you from all of your sin. It's the one-time cleansing of justification in which you are declared righteous before God, but it's also the ongoing, continual cleansing of sanctification where now your practice comes more into conformity with your position. And who you are in Christ now gets fleshed out more and more in how you live in this world. And you're purified by grace. Grace trains you because Christ has appeared to purify you. And then Christ makes us his own. He does this all so that he might make us his own possession, as it says in verse 14. Or better, really, his own treasured possession. We're his, his prized treasure. You, you really cannot miss this point and understand the text. This is the bright north star which guides the compass of God's grace. That God lavished his great and eternal goodness on us through Christ because he has desired to make us his own possession. His purpose is to call us unto himself and to make us his own. Those who were not a people to now become a people. Those who did not know him and did not serve him and did not worship him to be those who now do know him and do love him and do worship him. This is not, as you know, because we are so great, because we are so lovely, because we are so worthwhile, because why wouldn't God choose us? Rather, this is because God has set his love on us according to the mystery of his will beyond our comprehension. And out of the abundance of his own great mercy, he has lavished grace on us through his son and rescued us to make us his own. Now, you know this from the series in Deuteronomy. This is the same language, Old to New Testament, that's used in Old Testament texts and then in New Testament texts. I think Paul is intentionally using language that, that points us back to those realities. So he says in, in Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 8, this is just one example I could give you from the book of Deuteronomy. This is Moses speaking to the children of Israel. These are his final words, his final sermon. This is him telling them the most important things they must remember as they enter the promised land. And he wants them to know that God's love for them is not dependent upon how great and lovely they are. That God's love for them is set on them because he is a God of love and grace. He says this, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God, meaning he has set them apart as his own. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. 
But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. You think Paul is borrowing that same idea in Titus 2? Saying that you, like the children of Israel, have been rescued from the Pharaoh of sin, from a taskmaster that would dominate you for all of eternity, and he has rescued you because he has set his love on you so that he could make you his own treasured possession. Friend, maybe you're here tonight and you've never actually known this saving grace. And you're like, come on, Matt, we're on a Sunday night service. I mean, everybody here knows Jesus. Do you? I don't know. That's between you and our Lord. Do you know this Christ? This Christ who came to bring salvation for your soul. You've heard a lot about it if you've been around here at any length of time. But I'm asking you, do you know this Jesus and the salvation he brings by his grace? Has your, has your soul been saved and cleansed? Have you been rescued from sin and, and cleansed from its punishment and its defiling work? Are you one with Christ by grace through faith? What have you done with our Lord? Have you believed upon him? And do you now live in him and because of him? He came for that very purpose, to redeem us and to purify us. So if you have not yet been redeemed, may today be the day. Don't let head hit pillow tonight until you have this settled between you and the Lord. Do you know the grace of our Savior? As he gave himself to redeem us, he won and secured this treasured possession, verse 14 says. That leads us to that truth and that grace also trains us. So grace saves us, but grace also trains us in verses 12 and 13. So God has not poured out his grace upon us only to to rescue us from the pit of hell. He he hasn't just given us a get out of hell free card through the work of his son. He, He intends more than that. He intends by his overflowing goodness to to do something more in us, and that is to train us or to teach us, as it says in verses 12 and 13. This is the ongoing, unending, present activity of grace in the life of the believer. This is God's overflowing goodness in you to keep working on you. Grace intends to instruct you both positively and negatively through the course of normal life. This is the kind of training that the the parent or the teacher provides for the student. This is why I've titled this sermon, The Schoolhouse of Grace. You never get out of the schoolhouse of grace. You never graduate. You are always enrolled as a follower of Jesus in the schoolhouse of grace. You're always being trained. You're always under the tutelage of the goodness and the loving kindness of God. And this discipline that they train us in is what is is good and right, what accords with sound doctrine. Notice that grace trains us to be godly rather than ungodly, to be self-controlled rather than self-serving, to be upright rather than to be worldly, marked by impurity and sin. So grace trains us positively. Let's talk about that. Grace trains us positively. Trains us how to live a life that is according to sound doctrine. This is the the life that adorns that doctrine 
that Paul has been putting forward in the book of Titus. The life which shows off the truth of God in all of its glorious facets. Specifically, Paul says that grace trains us to be self-controlled, upright, and godly in this present age. So this is the, the work of present grace to flesh out in us what past grace has accomplished for us. Namely, salvation in Christ. So this is the work of God to take that which is yours in Christ and, and work it down into everyday realities. To be self-controlled is how grace affects me personally. To be upright is how grace affects my interactions with others. To be godly is how grace affects how I relate to God himself. So grace trains us in all three of those areas. The self, our relationship to others, and our relationship to God himself. There's, there's nothing not covered by grace. It's an all-encompassing reality to train us in a life that is pleasing to the Father. All of life comes under its transforming power. In relationship to the self, grace trains us to, to put off self-serving lusts of the flesh and to put on self-control. And let's just think practically with me for a minute. How does this work? So grace trains you to be self-controlled. How does that work? Well, the grace we're talking about here is the grace that has appeared in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So as you think to the work of Jesus on your behalf, as you seek to grow in saying no to the flesh and saying yes to God. That's at the, the nub of self-control, right? At the very core is this battle between your flesh and the Spirit of God over your life. Will you obey God or will you obey your flesh? How do you grow in that moment in saying yes to God? Well, Romans 6 makes that clear. You, you look to the cross work of Jesus. You've been identified with Him. You've been crucified with him and buried with him and raised with him. Therefore, you, by grace, can say no to sin and say yes to Christ. You see, grace trains you here. And so as you work through these different issues, as God works them in you by his design, you look to the cross and consider Christ, and in him you see all that you need for life and godliness. In Christ, we're freed from the the power of those sinful lusts, and we're given the ongoing strength to live life under his control. It's not dependent on us. It's not us creating more rules to keep us from sinful choices. It's not us coming up with, with more ways of accountability so that we walk in self-control. Those things might help us, but if they're absent of the core, they will only keep us in self-control for a short time. The core issue here is that we know the grace of God in Christ and we're trained by that grace to walk in further self-control. Grace also trains us to be upright. That's the shaping of my interactions with others by the truth and grace of God. This is the holiness of life which comes out in how I speak to others and how I speak about others, how I treat others. It's the flushing out of the great commandment that we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we love others as we love ourselves. This is the working out of, of that great commandment in everyday life. Knowing the grace of God in Christ transforms us in everyday living to be more upright in our relationships with one another. And grace trains us to be godly in this present age. This is the, the constant awareness of God. It's, it's the constant God consciousness. Godliness has at its core an awareness of the, 
the greatness of God, the majesty of, of our high and holy King. It's a, a walk in the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom. It begins with a right estimation of Him and all His glory and a right understanding of me and all my humility. And then it propels me forth into a, a life of wisdom as I receive His will and His way because He is the high and holy God. To do this in the present age means that we live this godly life in the here and now. It makes us actually more useful instead of less as we walk in this present evil age. So as we look back at past grace, we're compelled to walk in present grace, in love for God, and in the fear of God. And we're to do this in light of the present age where there's godliness, godlessness, excuse me, which dominates in our world. And then negatively, so that's positively. Grace trains us positively. It trains us also negatively. There's a counterbalance to that positive training. So being trained in godliness means that we're trained in the renouncing of ungodliness. Ungodliness is the, the mark of our culture, of our present evil age. It's the absence of the reverence of God. It's a spiritual defiance in the face of, of the creator and maker and sustainer of all things. It's the ex- exchanging of the creator for the created in a Romans 1 kind of way. Thanks, God, for making us. We've got it from here. We'll, we'll take over from here. It's a, a godless perspective. It's a dethroning of God and the enthroning of self. It's the arrogance which declares that mankind gets to determine such basic categories as, as marriage and human sexuality and gender. And those are the big ones. We could deduce that down to everyday stuff that you deal with on a daily basis. It's the heart which gives lip service to God, maybe even by attending religious services on the weekend or saying in a survey that you're a Christian and that you believe in God and that you read the Bible once in a while and maybe pray when it's really bad, but has no actual fear of God in your heart. Grace teaches us to renounce that ungodliness. It's an ungodliness that's marked by worldly passions, as he says here. These are the lusts of the flesh which dictate life outside of grace. These worldly passions are the animal instincts in each of us, the, the, the burdens of our flesh, the, the impulses of our flesh that try to draw us into all kinds of wickedness. Grace trains us to renounce these things. And by renouncing, he, he means simply to deny it, to turn from it. It's used in 1 Timothy 5 to describe the person who doesn't provide for his family and thereby has renounced the faith. You've turned from your faith at that point if you don't supply for your family in such a basic way as what 1 Timothy 5 describes. It's a word used to speak of what Moses did in Hebrews 11, looking back on his life when he renounced his position as Pharaoh's daughter refused to be called a son of Pharaoh's daughter, rather choosing to be mistreated with the people of God instead of enjoying the pleasures of sin for a season. That's what is is at stake here in grace training us. This is what grace teaches us to do. To value eternal realities, spiritual realities, greater than the passions or the impulses of our own flesh or the temptations of our own world. It's the opposite of what the unbeliever is said to do in Titus 1 and verse 16. Paul said they profess to know God, but they deny him with their works. 
Paul is saying if you actually know God, if you've actually experienced his grace, if you've actually been born again by his amazing, powerful goodness, then the exact opposite will be true for you. You'll profess to know God and you'll evidence that you know God. You'll walk in everyday godliness trained by grace. And then it trains us to live expectantly, to live expectantly, to look forward to Christ's soon coming. This powerful work of grace to save us trains us to be godly and then trains us to set our eyes on a, on a future that is full of hope. A future that Paul calls our blessed hope. Our Christian lives are, are hung between the two comings of our Lord. They form the alpha and the omega of our existence. At his first coming, we have everything we need to be born again and to gain entrance into the kingdom. At his second coming, we will be ushered into his kingdom and know the fullness of his joy forevermore at his right hand. And it's here in the middle that we live our lives dependent upon past grace, being trained by present grace and looking forward to future grace. This grace of God that appeared in the person and work of Christ brought with it a promise that is still unfulfilled. you remember that in Acts 1? Jesus told them, I'm commissioning you to take this gospel to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. Then he departs from them, ascends to the, the right hand of the Father, and as they stand staring into heaven, two messengers from heaven appear to these men and say, why are you staring upward? Just as you've seen him go, he will return to you. We wait for that moment. And we don't stand around gazing at the sky, being useless and unhelpful to all around us as we just bide our time and cloister ourselves in a sinful world, trying to bubble wrap ourselves spiritually so we're not harmed by a world that's out to get us. No, we're busy with the good works we've been called to do because grace trains us presently to put on all these things we've talked about already so that we're useful to him. But it also trains us to look ahead, to look beyond the present moment and to set our hope fully on the future grace that is yet to come. This will be a glorious appearing, the text says. Notice that in Christ's first coming, it was grace. In his second coming, it's preeminently his glory. In his first coming, his glory was veiled behind human flesh so that he could accomplish the great work of grace. That glory broke out in bits and pieces as he raised Lazarus from the grave and healed blind Bartimaeus and walked on the water. It, it broke out in bits and pieces, but largely veiled behind his humanity. There's coming a day when he returns, when, when he will come in all his glory. He will descend to the mount in Jerusalem in all authority, claiming this world as his own, establishing his millennial kingdom, ruling over the nations, for the glory of his name. His glory will not be missed when he returns. The, the gospel writers mention that often, that everyone will know that the Lord Jesus has returned. That will only cause then your heart rate to increase with anticipation if you are in Christ by grace. That does nothing to you if you're absent of grace. If you're out of grace, if you're apart from Christ, you don't know this grace, big deal. If you know Christ if you've been rescued by this grace, that makes your heart skip a beat. 
That makes your heart rate increase with anticipation for the day when this will all be over. When the struggle and the warfare will end. When the king will rule and reign. When your sin will be fully dealt with. You will be not only justified and sanctified, but also glorified. And you will reign with your Savior in his kingdom for his glory. That is the future grace yet to come. And then grace compels us in light of all that. So grace saves us, grace trains us. Then grace compels us in verse 14. How does all that matter for today? Well, you're compelled by this grace, this past grace that saves you, this present grace that cleanses and sanctifies you, this future grace in which you will be glorified in Christ should then make us zealous for good works right now. That's the effect of of God's work of grace upon us in this moment. Being Christ's own treasured possession, trained in grace, we are then zealous for good works, he says at the end of verse 14. And you know what it means to be zealous, right? You have some things you know a lot about because you really like them. You're zealous about them. Maybe it's the Royals. You know all their players and all their stats. Probably more likely the Chiefs, right? Because they're actually good. You probably know a few things about them. The Royals might be good again someday. They're not very good this year. You might know a lot about fishing. Or you might know a lot about cars. You might know a lot about sewing or knitting or embroidery. You might know a lot about books because you're a, a bibliophile and you just can't help but read and read and read. You might know a lot about the news because you're zealous to know what's going on in the world. You know every headline on Fox News for the last five days because you've checked it five times in the last hour. You might be zealous for relationships and having friendships. You might be zealous for what is happening on Facebook and all the, all the things happening in the lives of your people. Keeping up to date with what's going on and knowing how to be an encouragement to them. You're zealous for something. You know what it means to be zealous. And the point here is that grace that has redeemed you that has cleansed you, that has made you a prized possession of your Savior, intends to make you zealous for good works. These are not an optional add-on for the Christian life. This is not a la carte Christianity. I'll take a little grace, a little mercy, a little forgiveness of sin. I'll take a little patience. I'll take a little more time to make a decision. I'll take a little wisdom from the Lord Eh, good works, I don't need that right now. No, this is not how this works. Grace trains you in this most integral part of being a Christian to be zealous for that which he has called us to do. This is the necessary product of grace. You've maybe heard some people say that we, we need to live the gospel. Well, you, you can't live the gospel The gospel has been accomplished for you. This is not something you do through your living. You accomplish through your good works. And that's not what they mean to say. They just mean to say, live in light of the implications of the gospel. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's what they're trying to say. And this is what we're called to do in Titus 2.14. These works are so necessary that James says in James 2 that, that if you say you have faith but you don't have works, you actually don't have faith. You have a dead faith. John will say in 1 John 3.10, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Okay, John, you got my attention. How is it evident? 
Whoever does not practice the righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. This is the the litmus test of saving grace. We're not saved by these works, but these are the evidence of actually having grace save us, that we are zealous for good works. Don't miss the, the progression of our text. Grace saves us and then trains us and then compels us to good works. Grace is not something we earn. It's not a commodity that we trade in our good works to receive. Rather, grace is the abundant kindness of God which is brought to bear upon our lives by his own goodwill and pleasure. And when our life is touched by this grace, it transforms us and constantly trains us. And an evidence that you are being trained by grace is that you will be zealous for good works. You will want to be useful to the Lord. If grace is at work in you, one of the, one of the best ways to know is grace at work in me. Or am I hindering and grieving the work of the Spirit in my life? One of the best ways to know is how zealous are you to do the good works God has appointed for you to do? How eager are you to, to serve Him in the ways He has so ordained for you to do? Because as the as Appalachian Bible College has made their motto, life is for service. This is why we've been left here. In 1880, there's a book published in Great Britain titled The School of Grace, expository thoughts on Titus 2, 11 to 14. They can get away with long titles in the 1880s. We can't do that anymore. We have to do the School of Grace or maybe School of Grace to keep it short. The author's name was Canon Aitken. In the book, he said that all Christians become learners in the school of grace because grace not only saves us, but undertakes our training. He says in that book that it is in this school of grace that there are two windows. There's a window that faces east and a window that faces west. I know that's north and south. I'm just using it because that's where I'm standing. He says, through the western window, a solemn light streams from Mount Calvary. Through the eastern window shines the light of sun rising, the herald of a brighter day. Thus the school of grace is well lighted, but we cannot afford to do without the light from either west or east. You see, God's present work to transform and train you is by shining the light of past grace and future grace on your present existence. To cleanse you, to shape you, and to make you zealous for good works so that you can rejoice with all joy at the blessed return of our Lord Jesus. May God, in his kind work in us, use his grace, abounding and superabounding in our lives, to make us his treasured possession for good works, for his glory. Would you pray with me to that end? God, thank you for this text. Thank you for its clarity upon our souls. We pray that you would further your work of grace in us? Would you show us where it is that we have, have hindered your work by walking in our flesh, where we have grieved your spirit by not submitting and being trained by your grace? Father, we pray that you would free us with your truth to pursue you all the more as your treasured possessions to be useful for your work in this world. Would you further that work in us and through us? In Jesus' name, amen.